And the other thing, of course, that is, is really important is to understand right from the outset that whatever your intended strategy is, is not likely to be the strategy you end up with because stuff happens. We live in a volatile world, an uncertain world. And so what you often end up with is an emergent strategy that's grounded in wherever you started, but reflects the, the, the changes that happen over time. Hello everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Pep Talks podcast, where we'll be talking all about strategy and how to build a winning value creation plan under PE ownership. We are joined by Achilles CEO, Paul Stanley, who has held seven PE-backed CEO roles, the last four of which he took on when the business was underperforming so he could implement a successful strategic repositioning. Paul will be sharing his approach to building a strategy by focusing on the business's purpose, culture, and key customers, and then translating this into an effective value creation plan that is enthusiastically adopted by the whole organization. Now, over to Sam and Paul. So um, here we are back in Leeds for uh, our Leeds dinner, joined by Paul Stanley, our friend and honorary member. Hey, Paul. How are you doing? Hi, Sam. Thank you. Lovely to be back in the town of my birth. <laughs> yeah. And good to have you back on the podcast. Uh, Paul did an early podcast with us back in 2019, I think, pre-pandemic. Um, and we've got him back today because he's, uh, he's uh, in a new CEO, not so new, about a year old, a uh, year into a new CEO role. And I really wanted to talk to him about um, strategy, but value creation, planning and implementation really, and, and how, how to do that really effectively. Because a common question we are asked by members um, in, in our dinner formats and our clinic formats is uh, when they're new to private equity is, you know, I've had my strategy and my value creation plan signed off and now it's about implementation and how do I sequence things and, you know, how do I get my, my team and my whole business focused on what needs to happen when? Uh, which is quite a long answer to that. So I thought we'd, 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 uh, we'd tackle some of those things. But I thought maybe my first question would be, what, what do you think strategy is? Is it really two or three sentences that encapsulate the purpose and mission of your business? Or is it an extensive multi-page document that you're constantly reviewing and adapting? It could be either of those things, but for me, strategy has multiple lenses. Um, but the first thing I think about when I consider strategy is strategy as positioning. So how do we set ourselves apart from competitors in this industry in a way that customers recognize and value? I also think about strategy as resources. So what do we have that other people don't have? It's a resource-based view of strategy. Um, you can think of strategy as structure. Often you come into an organization and the structure is not effective, it's not fit for purpose, and you need to address that. But ultimately, strategy is about behaviours. And so however you choose to communicate that strategy, be it through a pithy vision statement, a mission, values, objectives, and so on, or whether it's a, a more significant document, ultimately what you're seeking to try to do is influence behaviours in the organisation so that people execute with common purpose, with clarity, and 
give their very best to the team achieving the objectives that you have. Mm-hmm. So in your new role, you are CEO of Achilles. In that, that's a business that had already been under private equity ownership, hadn't it? And already had a, at least one, maybe several CEOs. I don't know the history, but how did you arrive in that business? And did you set a new strategic direction or were you inheriting something that the investors had backed behind? So Achilles is a mature business. It started 33 years ago in Norway. It was primarily focused on health and safety in the supply chain to oil and gas. But today it's many more things. It covers multiple different um, risk areas and it's a global business delivering service into more than 140 countries um, from 17 offices. And so there are all kinds of challenges with that in terms of scope, scale, culture, time zones, um, what the business means to people in different geographies. And so one of the first things I wanted to try and do was to establish a sense of common purpose. What I inherited was a business that was trying to see itself as a software business and was trying to be generically applicable to all industry segments. And the business had been through a tough pandemic, it had been through a tough replatforming. Um, the management team had fought very hard to retain control of it and ensure the business survived. But it was a business that was suffering from declining revenues um, and seemed massively internally focused. As the business tried to get control, it had created enormous central hierarchies and sucked all the power and decision making away from the regions. And so what I wanted to do very quickly was align people behind a common vision as to what the business should be, help them understand it in a simple way, help them understand who we serve, why we serve and what we do. Um, And so I looked at our very best customers and I, I class the best customers as those who are sticky, they've been with us longest, they value what we do, they understand what we do. And I figured out that those businesses were in what I've summarized to be dirty, dangerous and regulated industries because they are the people who value what Achilles does most. So if you think about any environment where you might damage the surrounding area, be it water, be it the air, you might cause harm to somebody, then that's where Achilles is at its best. So it's a really purposeful business. And when you have that purpose, it's actually quite easy to galvanize people behind it. So we started talking about serving dirty, dangerous and regulated industries to make the world cleaner, safer and fairer. And pretty much everybody in the business can understand that Mm. and get behind it. And it gives them a genuine sense of pride in what they do in the wider market. Every day we stop some modern slavery or child labour, we stop a river being polluted, we stop crops being flattened by chemical spillages, and, and it really is a meaningful, purposeful business. And so creating that sense of pride and passion in the people was one of the keys to strategy execution for this business. So instead of running around the market trying to get every brand you've ever heard of to be a customer of Achilles, the sales and marketing effort became much more focused on segments that we could really get a strong foothold in and develop. So what was the business before? It was, what, what would they have described it as? So, so they, they felt they had a, a, a global SaaS platform um, that provided supplier risk management. Mm-hmm. 
which you've almost fallen asleep by the end of the sentence. And all things to all people. All things to all people. But, you know, I, I'm happy to take customers from any segment, um, but we know which segments we perform best in, and mm-hmm. that's where we should really focus. Okay. How long did it take to get to, get to that conclusion? And was, so, it, was it a process of talking to customers and really understanding whether where they perceive the value as being? Yeah, so I'd, I'd followed the business for a while and had a look at um, the business with a, another private equity company some years ago. So I was familiar with the business and the challenges and opportunities that it faced. But um, the first thing I did, the sort of 100-day plan, which is a classic American president trick, included talking to lots of stakeholders in the broadest sense. Now, customers for Achilles could be the big buyers at the top of the value chain, or they could be tiny suppliers, two or three person businesses delivering a particular niche service or product. And what I wanted to understand was the value that each of those stakeholders felt Achilles brought to them. For the buyers, it is about risk management. It's about reputation management. It's about having alternatives in the supply chain so that you've got reasonable certainty that if one supplier fails, there are others available to you. For the suppliers, there was a myth in the business that they saw Achilles as a tax on doing business with the buyer. I spoke to lots of suppliers, very few of them actually expressed that view because the the supply fee is actually quite modest. Um, Most of them said it's quite hard to get through. And I said, yeah, it should be. Think about what we're doing. Mm. Yeah, if it wasn't hard to get through, how proud would you be that you'd been accredited? Um, and also, what do you learn when you go on that journey with us? And finally, once you're accredited, you're not just accredited for the one buyer, you're accredited for any buyer in that industry that chooses to work through Achilles. Mm-hmm. So there are lots of benefits to the, to the suppliers that hadn't been clearly articulated through the strategy and through the marketing. Mm. What, what was it in your experience or toolkit that allowed you to see that in fairly simple terms where perhaps previous CEOs, I'm not knocking these CEOs, I don't, I don't know who they are, but where perhaps business hadn't seen itself in that, in yeah, that way I, I, I think previous CEOs had, had been good, actually. I, the, the, the person I took over from, I thought, was a really good CEO, but he'd been through this period of massive replatforming and the pandemic mm. and and that required certain behaviors mm. um, as we came out of the pandemic as the plat- replatforming was nearly done the opportunity to get back to growth was the obvious opportunity to take and so figuring out really who you should serve and how you should serve them is the starting point i, ge- I generally use fairly traditional tools when i pick up a business i'll even go back to SWOT analysis, PESTLE, five forces, all the stuff you learn in business school and don't ever use again. I tend to use them mm. um, because I like to do a really good internal audit of our capability and also an external environment um, view so that I, I really understand what, the, what I think the market wants based on the analysis that we do rather than just guessing. Yeah. Um, and so certainly lots of conversations, lots of analysis and so on. So, so I think it's probably just taking a structured approach. Um, and then really listening and really thinking. Mm. So, you know, I see SWOT analysis uh, done by people at all levels. 
that are just streams of consciousness in four boxes. And I, I describe those as so what analysis. What I want is the four or five bullet points in each box that make you do something because that's what's going to drive the business forwards. Yeah. So it's not a matter of just filling the space. It's about thinking about what you're filling the space with. And the other thing, of course, that is, is really important is to understand right from the outset that whatever your intended strategy is, is not likely to be the strategy you end up with because stuff happens. We live in a volatile world, an uncertain world. Um, and so what you often end up with is an emergent strategy that's grounded in wherever you started, but reflects the, the, the changes that happen over time to, to every business. I guess it comes back to what you said right at the beginning, which is about, it's about behaviors, really creating behaviors. Yeah. Um, okay, so you, you've, you've gone through uh, a fairly extended process of really understanding the business, its position in the market and where it can win. Um, and you've encapsulated that in a, fairly, in a straightforward communication of this is who we are, where we play and how we're gonna win. How do you then turn that into value creation planning and really thinking about you know, the, the, the shareholder and the return that they, they need to, uh, you need to deliver for them in a fairly short period of time? Because that also is a challenge, isn't that? Sort of long-term yeah. value creation versus the requirement, the need to deliver a short-term investment. Well, I think the requirements of management and the requirements of investors are often quite well aligned. Um, you, you couldn't sell a business five years down the line if you'd hollowed it out and there was no capability there. So certainly most of the good private equity houses understand that it's important to build capability, to build differentiation, to have clarity around the strategy and to execute well. And, and there probably aren't really shortcuts to really good value creation. Um, from management's point of view, many of them are taking a long-term view in terms of their own careers, as well as being incentivized by the equity as well. So I think the first thing to do is to check that you've got alignment. And, and alignment's a, a really important um, factor in, in making the business perform and making sure you keep the shareholder on side. Um, I, I do think profit-maximizing behaviors are entirely strategic. I don't think they're counter-strategic and private equity sometimes gets a bad reputation for loading businesses up with debt, stripping costs out, leaving something that's very hard to manage. Well, I, that only happens when management's not executing well, in my view, when management's got um, an understandable value creation plan that everybody believes in and everybody's lying behind. It doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I, I've been lucky. I, I've worked with um, really good private equity houses who've operated thoughtfully and strategically and, and generally been supportive of management doing the right thing. I don't think it needs to be a battle at all. But when you're building that value, the value is proved by the financial performance. And you can have all of the mission statements, vision statements, value statements in the world, but ultimately the business survives because it generates cash, cash is the oxygen. And so if your private equity board is urging you to look at your cash generation, you ought to do that. 
Yeah. Um, and it's interesting how many CEOs and even CFOs sometimes find that quite hard to get to grips with. Mm. Um, I, I do think, though, that um, most PE-backed businesses start with a sensible investment thesis. And, of course, stuff happens over time, they go wrong, you get performance issues, whatever. But usually the it's worth going back to the original investment thesis and say, what were these people thinking of when they chose to invest this money? Mm -hmm. How do we get it back to something like that? Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I also think that because of the timeline of private equity, people are against the clock. And, and one of the things that can undermine value for management is the cost of debt, the interest cost of debt over time. And so I think it is worth management shareholders constantly having that timeline in their mind as well. Mm -hmm. If they want to see value emerge from the investment and many of them can be life-changing money if they get it right. So it is worth yeah. taking that view. So what does your value creation exercise plan look like? What do you end up, what does it look like and what do you end up with? What do you, con what do you conclude with? Is it as simple as a plan on a page with some fairly um, easy to recognize value creation pillars. Yeah, so, so value creation in a private equity about business um, comes from relatively simple levers. You know, you, you grow, you pay down debt, you generate more EBITDA, um, it's those kinds of things. So it's your most cool. So, so, so exactly, so how do I shift me, my, my, the profile of my business to um, a profile that gets me a higher multiple on EBITDA if EBITDA is the measure? Um, increasingly we're seeing annual recurring revenue as a measure as well. I, I think it is important, even if you're driven by ARR, to remember that at some point, if not this owner, the next owner needs to believe that cash is going to be generated. Mm. Um, and and that, that sounds like a very tactical statement, but it's actually a really strategic statement. You need to plot the path to get there. Um, and so for me, the value creation plan is a series of work streams and actions that lead to that value being created, whatever it might be in the context of the business. So it might be that you need to improve the margins. It might be that you need to improve the growth rate. It might be that you need to improve the quality of business that you have. It may be process level things like introducing automation to improve the operational gearing of the business, to allow you to grow faster without adding lots of cost and lots of people. So plot all those things out and see how they apply to your business and then put a timeline against them. I know that uh, there are various... Do you work backwards though? Do you, when the timeline, do you look, look from the end and work your way backwards or you... No, no, I, 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 I start from where I am and then figure out what the end objective should be and then plot the path. Um, I, I think that... Um, right. It's very, da it's very dangerous actually to, to, to start with... A, um, a number in mind at the end and then try and work back from it because it forces you to believe things you shouldn't believe in terms of the organisational capability. So if you say, I'm going to double EBITDA in four years and that requires you to grow revenue at a rate that revenue has never been grown at before, mm. then why would you believe in that strategy? Mm. So I prefer to, to build it from bottom up. I don't mind them working back once I've done that to validate it. But done properly, it's actually quite an intense, laboursome and thoughtful exercise. Um, but don't take too long because you're against the clock and you've got to get on with it. Yeah. 
how do you then communicate the value creation plan? How do you get it? How do you, you know, answer that question or challenge that we're set regularly of how do you get a, a business that perhaps, unlike your case, Achilles, but in a, in a first time buyout, they, it's like, what's going on here? Why, are we, why have we suddenly got to do so much in such a short period of time? How do you get them bought into it? So, so first of all, just be clear, clarity is so important. And, and often a, a CEO and other business leaders will stand up and try and explain what they're doing and why they're doing it. And it just takes too long and it's too confusing. It's too hard for people to understand. So really learn your lines so that when you talk to people about it, you're sure they understand it. Mm -hmm. I used to use something called the mum test. So if my mum could understand what the business did and why we were pursuing a certain strategy, I felt confident I could explain it to everybody in the business. Um, and it seems to work as a principle. You know, just have that in mind. How do you explain this to a, a layperson, to a family member? Would they get it? Mm. Um, and then make it matter to them. Find something that resonates with them about the business. When I was running GNS, Global Navigation Solutions, the shipping industry was going through a transformation from paper-based navigation to digital navigation. Um, and, and the reason for that was partly because the technology was available, but mainly because there are a surprising number of accidents at sea that result from poor navigation. And so when I spoke to people in the warehouse at Global Navigation Solutions about the business and asked them what they did, they said, well, we sell charts to ships. When I said, actually, you're in a safety business because all these accidents happen at sea and they're due to bad navigation. The quality of pick, pack and dispatch improved overnight because actually it mattered. There's somebody at the other end of the transaction yeah. that you cared about. It's purpose, yeah. Yeah, it's purpose. So having purpose. Um, and then communicating a lot. You'd be surprised how many, need, how many times through how many different forms of media to different groups, to individuals, you need to repeat the same message over and over again. Yeah. And I apologise up front. As soon as I join, I'm going to be really boring because I'm going to repeat things. It's not because I'm old and senile. It's because I want to make sure they land. Yeah. What, do you use any tools? Have you used tools? Yeah, yeah. So, so we do all, all, all manner of communication methods. So simple, small group meetings, sevens lunches in different offices around the world regular town halls, which we broadcast. Um, we just recently did one from Arendelle in Norway to everybody in the world with a couple of our board members there. Um, we're pretty low tech because we don't want to look like we're spending an enormous amount of money on video production when we're trying to manage costs elsewhere. Mm. So it's basically a massive Teams call um, that we record and people can play it back in their own time. Um, I do a weekly blog to all the staff. Um, and I get a lot of feedback on that, just talking about current issues, reinforcing where we are. Um, and we, we can some content that people can get from our own intranet as well, helping them understand vision strategy. We're really open with the numbers as well. Very transparent, I've found over the years that really helps. But often you have to start by explaining what the numbers mean. Yeah. Lots of people in the business don't really understand accounting, why would they? So if I make EBITDA very important as a target, I need to make sure that everybody in the business understands what EBITDA is and why it matters. So often we'll do an accounting 101 really early in the journey. Mm -hmm. We'll talk through the financial plan. We'll align that plan to our strategy. 
so that they're not disconnected in people's minds and will explain to them why the numbers we're chasing matter for whatever reason. Some businesses that have had poor cash generation, it becomes all about collections, cash flow, working capital. Well, to somebody on the front line of a business, that might all be totally meaningless until you explain it in the context of the role that they do for the company mm-hmm. and help them understand how they can influence it. Do you ever get pushback of, you know, well, you know, you and the senior executive and management team and the shareholders are doing this to create, you know, to create personal wealth. It's not really about the best of the business. That's the only danger in educates broadly. So, so I'm totally honest about that with people. Yeah, we, uh, we have a private equity shareholder. They don't love the business the way we love the business. They're here because they think it can generate a return for them, but they're providing much needed capital that allows us to grow. And if we do a great job, then that creates a growth opportunity for everybody in the business. Um, what I also try to do is put a wealth creation plan in place for all of the colleagues in the business right. and turn the mindset from being employees to being partners. Yeah, you're part of it. Yeah, and you know, it's often a tiny bit each. It's yeah. not, you, they're not gonna be buying super yachts on the proceeds, but could be significant yeah. um, in the context of a monthly salary. Yeah. Um, and, and I think once people feel that they have a little bit of the business, it does change the mindset for many people. They feel like they have voice, so they're more likely to challenge things. Um, I always explain that as soon as everybody's a shareholder, I'm then working for them, not them working for me. And and I genuinely buy into that servant leadership model. Um, But most importantly, you end up with the shareholder you deserve. So we talk a lot about that as well. If we do a great job, the next owner of this business will be a great owner for the business. If you do a bad job, it might all be a bit scrappy. Mm-hmm. What about tools that you might use as operating processes to get, to get that cadence of value creation and focus into, into the wider business? You know, people, you know, colleagues write down on the sort of shop floor, as it, as it were, you know, completely focused on this is, this is what we need to do by when. So, so we do use objectives um, but we try to be thoughtful in the way we use objectives um, and we try to not have too many objectives. I think if somebody's trying to deliver more than three things, they're going to start failing on things and yeah. feeling miserable about it. Um, what we also try to do to some extent is de-link individual objectives from financial reward. So the objectives are there such that we can succeed as a team. And if we succeed as a team, then there'll be financial benefit that flows from that. Yeah. Um, I think increasingly, the idea that there are some heroic people who perform at the extreme end of performance and then some terrible people you've got, got, got to get rid of, and then a whole bunch of mediocre people in the middle just doesn't reflect reality. Most people come to work to do a good job. They can absolutely be trusted, whether they're in the office or working from home, to give their best mm. um, if they believe, if they're engaged. Mm. And, and so that's the first challenge. And, and I think we've achieved that at Achilles. And so I think where people are now is of a mindset that we succeed or fail as a team rather than succeed or fail as individuals. And I see that in the, the, the response when a deal comes in. First of all, the, the salesperson who led that deal is usually generous listing 
a whole cast of people who've helped them do it. Secondly, it's almost like um, watching a scene from a Premier League football match when somebody scores, everybody runs around and hugs them, you know, metaphorically. Um, and it wasn't actually like that a year ago. Um, it was very much about individual performance. And you, so, know, you know you want to change. Yeah, yeah, and it just feels good, you know. But I, I know, because I know you uh, well, um, that you're, you've looked at all of the, there were three or four sort of uh, common operating processes, aren't there? There's yeah. um, OKRs, which I'm a massive fan of. We've, we've, we've implemented them into into pep talks. I mean, it's a big commitment and it's um, it's constant reiteration. Every three months, you're trying to improve yeah. the process of using OKRs. Um, there's business model canvas. There's entrepreneurs operating system. Yeah. I mean, how important do you think these tools or, or getting ahead around using something like this is in this... Yeah. private equity context. So, so I, I think it's important to have a framework. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be an off-the-shelf framework. You can build your own that's applicable to your own business. I think what that framework needs to cover are the value creation levers that you have and a cadence of change and delivery and a measure of success or failure. And that's usually a quantitative measure. Um, and so if you think about entrepreneurs operating system and OKRs, you can easily use them together. They're not mutually exclusive. Yeah. Um, I think entrepreneurs operating system, you can add different criteria to the ones that are listed. You don't, you don't just have to take theirs, it might not work for your business. Um, or you can cut some out. But what's really important is to make sure that there's clarity so that everybody understands why that measure's in place, why it's been measured in the way it's been measured, why the cadence is the cadence, and what good looks like and what bad looks like and what correct, corrective actions are available. Um, I, I think these are not really strategy tools. These are execution tools. Yeah, management tools. Yeah, management they? tools. Um, and we've seen many over the years. We've seen balanced scorecard. Probably that was one of the early ones. Um, and uh, management by objectives. Uh, I think that was sort of 80s, early 90s. And, and, and they're all helpful and useful. But really, all they are is hooks to hang different coats on. Um, and, and they work if you use them. They don't work if yeah. you go through a paper-based exercise and then put them in a drawer. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, what I'm learning from it is um, it, it comes from you as the CEO, doesn't it? it? You absolutely have to own the operating system or process, whether you're using something off the shelf or you're or you're developing something that's worked for you in the past, I mean, you absolutely have to own it. And then you have to cascade that down yeah. through the organization, through your top team and then you know, middle management and then right into yeah. the employee group. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I do think that getting your senior leadership team together away from the day-to-day -day activity so that they can look at this, talk about it, challenge it, understand it, and then own it as they leave the meeting is really important. Mm. I think if myself and the CFO sat in an office and came up with it and just sent it out by email, we'd have no chance. So one of the things I did within a couple of months of joining Achilles was brought all of the SLT together from all over the world in Didcot in Oxfordshire, where the UK office is, and we workshopped this stuff for two days and came out with a stated value creation plan that people believed in. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I think what you've got to be careful of is that you've got real belief and engagement and not just people nodding because they want to keep their jobs. Um, and, and we certainly noticed that and we had to make some changes. Um, and making those changes early is usually quite important as well. And you notice that through behaviours, coming back Absolutely. to the original yeah. point of strategy. Absolutely. So you're, you develop, you, you, you simplify your message in terms of what the business purpose is and where you're trying to win. You create a value creation plan that really revolves around four or five or more than that simple levers, yeah. but uh, complex to deliver. Uh, yeah. Think about an operating process, but then you're really into culture then, aren't you? You're trying to create an environment where people yeah. are engaged and have a sense of autonomy, but yeah. sense of, you know, this is where we're trying to get to. And, and culture is incredibly complicated, of course. Um, we, we like to talk about organisational culture as though it's something that has a, an existential presence. In fact, it, it's something that we probably all perceive and experience in our own way. I think... The, the sort of grandfather of um, academic organisational culture, sadly passed away a few months ago, a guy called Edgar Schein, um, was one of the first to talk about the fact that organisations may contain multiple different cultures mm. and they come together in a certain way. So he talked about the importance of national culture, management culture, executive culture, engineering culture, um, microcultures in individual teams, for example, and how they may not all be the same. In fact, they're often quite different. And, and what you experience as the organisational culture as a CEO, as you look across the whole business, is probably not what individuals experience as culture day to day. And so you get this interaction between culture and strategy. And that's why I always go back to behaviours, because behaviours are easy to describe and behaviours can be influenced. Culture is often deeply embedded in intergenerational, hard to understand, definitely hard to change. Some people think impossible to change. But what I can change through my own behaviour and through strategic clarity and clarity around behaviours, values, is the behaviour of others. Mm -hmm. and, and then positively reinforce good behaviours that lead to value creation. Mm -hmm. So promote, pay, promote, incentives, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah all that. There are all those tangible representations of success. Might be an apologies for the sort of too obvious a question, but the, the behaviours that you you identified that you weren't comfortable with, what were they? Yeah. So, so as part of trying to get control of the business through a very difficult period. Um, an enormously powerful centre had been built for the business in Didcot. And the regents had very little voice and very little decision-making autonomy. And the behaviours of the people in the centre were um, almost like colonial masters dictating what was going to happen without listening to um, reason from the regions. And entire hierarchies and power structures have been built up around that, which is very expensive for the business um, and had massively outlived its usefulness. And so dismantling that hierarchy and flattening the organisation and then transferring the decision-making power to five regional directors 
was challenging for the organisation. Mm. It was very hard for those who were left in that central organisation to understand the changing power dynamic of those relationships. And so on occasions there were unfortunate discussions and they had to be mediated and dealt with. And had those business had those people been around for a while? Had they? Yeah, both, both, in the, yeah both in the regions and, and in the central organisation. But as I say, the, this, this enormous power structure um, just dominated everything the business did and, and resulted in internal meeting after internal meeting. And so regional salespeople had to bring every deal to something that's called deal desk in front of an army of people on MS Teams in a country they'd never visited, not discussing it in their first language and trying to justify and defend their deal. Whereas the business will grow quicker if the approach to driving deals forward is entirely collaborative. Mm. Of course you need to challenge, you know, why is the margin so low? Can we really do that? All the normal questions. But why wouldn't we trust an experienced, accomplished regional director to ask all of those questions before it comes anywhere near so-called head office? Yeah. In a conversation we were having, I think just last week, bring it into the sort of culture element of what we're talking about. You were um, talking about gamification in sales um, environments and uh, how that, how you use that as a tool to really improve the value of your contracts or customer spend. Tell us, tell us a bit about that. Well, we, we know that salespeople can often be driven by commission. Um, uh, and you know, people use terms like coin-operated, but actually professional salespeople selling solutions also behave like consultants and need to be respected by their biggest customers. They also need to have fun um, to keep them sharp and they like to compete. Um, and so appealing to more than just their desire to earn the commission check, I think is important to changing their behaviors and their performance. Uh, and I really like the idea of competition between people in sales organizations for non-financial gain, for a prize, for kudos, something of that nature. Because mm -hmm. it creates um, uh, a rivalry that's good-natured rather than ill-humored. Um, and so I came across a software tool written by a, a team in Australia called Spinify that works really well. It allows you to, to create um, a gamification environment that's themed so that you can have you know, all kinds of cartoon fantasy competitions between people, football league tables, rugby league tables, whatever, whatever you like through that um, platform. I'm sure other platforms are available that do similar things, but, but this is the one that, that I've been working with. Uh, and I found that the, the idea of making it fun to compete to win in a sales environment is actually quite motivating for people. But, but I've done this for years. I mean, you know, when I first started in sales years and years ago um, at NCR Corporation, they used to have the annual president's trip for anybody who made 100% a quota mm. to somewhere exotic and, and it was fiercely competitive and that's something that IBM used to do and so on. And it's, st it's still something that big companies do. But when I first started out running my own businesses, I used to have much more modest competitions than that. Um, I remember putting a, 
a prize up as a as a nice watch for the first person who made quota first in the year, mm. and um, travel luggage for the best international deal and that sort of thing, which is you know not in the same league as a a, tr- a trip to Hawaii, but nonetheless, for whatever reason, people were driven to compete to win it, and it yeah. became important to them. I think in that, I think that idea of you know because we're all focused on. Uh, Improving margin in this environment and improving customer spend and cross-sell and upsell. This was the uh, context of the conversation we were having, wasn't it? You know, the idea of moving your customers into the Premier League is... Yeah. I, mean, I don't know, it's you know, a very football analogy or yeah, you know, sporting yeah. analogy, but the idea that um, you, know, you can take a customer that is, uh, that is in non-league and turn it into Premier League... You, you have to de- yeah, you have to define what that means, of course. And, sure. and for me, often it's about the number of products that a cost- customer takes. Yeah, uh, and so introducing that dimension of gamification to the account managers is helpful as well, because of course they all want their customers to be in the Premier League, um, and so that encourages them to think about how they get up the leagues, um, and and it matters to them at the end of the day in their paycheck because. They'll earn more commission that way. But somehow there's an inner pride that comes from getting your customer promoted through the leagues. Mm. Um, when I had Moneybox years ago, I actually used to run a similar program between individual stores that had one of my ATM for those that had seen the most growth in ATM transactions in a period. And there was fierce competition between all of these convenience store merchants who could grow their transaction volume the fastest. And that incentivized them to put our marketing material out, to give us a good spot in store, mm. to tell people to use the machine, uh, and, and so on. And again, it, it drove volume for us. Okay, last question. Um, in preparation for today, I was listening to our last podcast, which, um, which I've referenced already. You can find it in our, in, in our iTunes account. Um, but in there, I asked you a question, and you said something about uh, working with your first private equity shareholder, uh, I think it would have been Apex. Apex, yeah. Apex. 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 Sorry, and you were talking about the chair. I think the chair that you had, and I think he said to you, Paul, I'm, I'm only, um, I'm only really worried about six things, yeah. and we're just going to talk about these six things. He made it really. Yeah, that was simple the, for you because that was the investment director from Apex. So you knew yeah, where you yeah, stood, but yeah. I didn't ask you what were those six things that they wanted you to yeah, focus so, on. So that that was a business that deployed cash machines, um, and so they were interested in deployment rate. They were interested in average transaction volume. They were interested in average revenue per machine. They were interested in redeployment rate. So where did we put a machine and it didn't work? Mm-hmm. Um, they were interested in variable costs that we could control. In particular, cost of cash was an important dynamic for this business. And therefore, cash utilization it costs a lot of money to take cash to an ATM. And so what they were concerned about was that we were taking the wrong amount of cash to ATMs and, and bearing the cost of that cash in the machines so that was really important. Like stock, so, really. Yeah, effectively, it's like a stock control measure. And then they were interested in uh, maintenance statistics, performance of the assets themselves. Yeah. Because downtown, downtown on an ATM is lost revenue. Yeah. Um, and yeah, those, those were the six, and they've stayed with me, funnily enough. Um, but I always look for something similar in every business. What are the 
small number of things that I may have control over, may have control over, can influence, um, that will really drive performance in this business. Um, and, and they're different for every business, but it's useful to really think about them yeah. and then figure them out and have them in your, in your plan. I think that just comes, brings us back full circle, really, from where we started. I mean, those, what you've just described there, I mean, six objectives, really, sure. aren't they? They're, they're simple objectives. Let's nail these objectives. Uh, let's constantly improve these objectives, and we know we're going to drive value. We're going to create value. Six n- nowadays in the OKR world might be a bit few too many, yeah, but, yeah. you know, that's as simple as that. Yeah. And I do think it is that relentless drive for marginal improvement in these aspects that leads to value it's not usually you know a magic wand it's not usually a secret formula it's just hard work Mm. Um, and getting everybody else to sign up for that hard work with you perfect that's great paul